What is up, freaks? It's your boomer Uncle Marty here to introduce this episode of Tales from the Crypt. Sat down with Kelly Lannon, creator of Bitcoin Urbanism, an incredible substack, talking about how we're going to bring back good city planning, good classical architecture, and just good aesthetics all around under a Bitcoin standard. Uncle Marty had a pretty, pretty massive boomer moment last night, freaks, Sunday night. Just poured my water in my Yeti, about to go to go to bed. Get tucked in before ten thirty. Your boomer Uncle Marty fell down the stairs. It hurt. It cut up my arm. My back's really sore. I fell down every stairs. Like I felt like I'm not even thirty years old yet, but I felt like the guy in the uh, the Life Alert commercial laying at the bottom of the stairs. My wife's screaming, what the hell's going on? I'm screaming, help, I can't get up. I've fallen and I can't get up. Water all over me. It hurt. It was scary. It happened really quickly. Be aware of the stairs, freaks. This is this is the PSA to, to start this episode out. Be aware of the stairs. Maybe my stairs weren't, weren't designed correctly because we live under a fiat monetary system and Kelly will get into that. There's a lot of shit going on. Like this episode of Kelly, I think it's very important. Getting back to my roots to TFTC, finding finding relatively undiscovered gems in the Bitcoin space. I think Kelly is one of them. I think the subject that he's focused on is highly interesting. And I think his background as a real estate developer brings a lot of interesting context to the Bitcoin uh, discussion, but as well as the, the, the inflation discussion that we've been touching on and on about throughout the whole history of this podcast, but more acutely in the last year as, uh, as the economic shutdowns have happened and the money printing has happened. Kelly's proximity to the increased prices of materials for building is very interesting and it's a very scary situation. It's, uh, there's inflation happening. I don't want to say the word hyperinflation yet, but the way in which these real estate developers are having to either shut down building projects or cough up more money immediately when they go to buy materials. Not good. Not good. We do end it on we the episode's very optimistic though, but I think it's if you're interested to learn about what's going on behind the scenes, uh in the real estate world, in the construction world, this is some incredible insight from somebody who is living it every day. So I think you guys are going to enjoy this episode. It's brought to you by our good friends at the motherfucking Cash App. You guys already know all about them. They help you stack sats, send sats, receive sats, sell sats, if you so please. We're saying sats, 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 because sats are the standard. There are 100 million sats in one Bitcoin, and they're getting... They're getting more expensive, freaks. I know we just had a little dump today, but still, one cuck buck's going to get you like 1,500 sats, I believe. Let me pull up the dashboard. Right now, 1,700. 1,776 to be exact, actually. Very, very interesting. Um, but yeah, it's getting harder and harder to get get into the million, the Sat, Satoshi Millionaire Club. Um, if you're paying attention, it's more expensive. So make sure you're stacking. Cash App allows you to do that. Uh, Cash App can also be your bank account. They offer account numbers and round numbers. You get your paychecks direct deposited into the app so you can stack quicker. 
what else? Be be aware of the withdrawal limits. Their limits two to thousand daily, five thousand weekly. Make sure you're getting it off the exchange uh, of Cash App uh, as you're stacking, so you so you don't get stuck on. Hopefully, they're going to fix that problem. I think they're working on it. Use the code stacking status S T A C K I N G S A T S. You're going to get ten dollars, and ten dollars going to go to our good friends Owls Lacrosse. That's Owls Lacrosse. Freaks, we got a new sponsor. New sponsor. Okay. And I'm very, very, very excited to have these guys on the TFTC roster. They are an incredible company in the Bitcoin space, and they've really stayed true to the ethos of, of Bitcoin and, and work to make better products around it. Brains, they're longtime freaks. And again, it's exciting to have them back, as if, or have them back, have them officially on as a sponsor for the first time. You probably know them again for their mining software, Slush Pool, Brains OS Plus, and their team working on Stratum V2 as well. Jan and Pavel, who are the co-founders of Brains, they came on TFTC back in 2019, episode number 73. Uh, they talked about the history of slush pool and mining, Brains OS, Better Hash, which uh, back then they were they were sort of mulling Stratum V2 over, and that's uh, what Better Hash got replaced with with Stratum V2, which is what they were working on, the ASIC manufacturer sector of the industry. Um, they, they've been building firmware for that. They've got hash rate markets coming out and more. Edward Evanson, cheese hater, notorious cheese hater. He was on at 199 to talk about custom firmware. Again, the, the update on Stratum V2 and a bunch of other things. Uh, go check out those episodes, 73 and 199. Brains are leaders in the mining industry. Uh, they've been the company running Slush Pool since 2013. They took over Slush Pool. They officially bought uh, Slush's stake earlier this year as well. Uh, they've been one of the only mining pools against Bcash uh, from the beginning. Robert Roger Ver called Slush Pool the biggest Bitcoin core cheerleader pool, um, which is interesting. And they never mind any of the Bitcoin fork coins. They have, they have developers on Brains OS Plus, which is a custom firmware to help miners stack more sats by auto-tuning the voltage and frequencies on each chip in the ASICs to achieve better terahash per watts. Try to make the miners more efficient so miners can stack more sats. In other words, stack as many sats as possible with the user set power consumption. It's very technical, but they're helping miners stack more sats. Uh, Brains teams led by Jan and Pavel. They did the work to verify overt ASIC boost as well. Um, and uh, they open sourced the Antminer S9 firmware back from Bitmain. It was the only dominant hardware manufacturer, and, and centralization was m much more worrying. They were there to, to help shed light on on this part of bitcoin um so yeah they're leading stratum v2 as well along with matt Corallo and others at square crypto brains is a working implementation of stratum v2 on slush pool uh and included in the brains os plus firmware so if you guys are running that firmware want to test it out um i'll be the first on their list to get product updates so keep listening to tftc if slush pool comes out with anything new uh if brains os comes out with anything new uh, the brains team is 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 building incredible incredible things so yeah great to have them on on the roster so go check them out um, we'll link to their website in the show notes go check out everything they're doing if you're minor definitely check out their firmware if they have it available for your model it's pretty incredible while we have them while we're talking about mining we should mention compass as well compass uh, is another sponsor that's working to uh, make sure that individuals can stack sats via mining as well they're gonna 
really simplify the process of, of buying a miner and finding a place to plug it in. That's how I like to describe it. They, they take away all the headaches from working with manufacturers or secondary markets to, to get an ASIC and then uh, finding somewhere to plug it in. So you, you can go to compassmining.io. That's C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O. Uh, and you'll be able to go there. You'll be able to pick a, a miner that you want. You buy it. And then you pick a, a hosting uh, place with a, with a competitive cost of power production, electricity cr- price. Uh, and then you, you point it there and you say, hey, I want to plug it in here. They get the miner. They plug it in. And you start stacking sats that way. So go check it out, compassmining.com, C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G.com. They want to make sure the little guys mining are going to make it easier for you. they got great customer service, and they're going to take you from zero to mining in no time. So go check it out. Last but not least, our good friends at HODL HODL. They have their new Lend product. Uh, if you guys don't want to sell your Bitcoin, HODL HODL has a new non-custodial Bitcoin-backed lending pr- platform. It allows peer-to-peer lending and borrowing between users, globally, anonymously, and on your own terms. Huddle Huddle has nothing to do except for the, the multi-sig extra. So if you're short funds, you don't want to sell your Bitcoin, you get some liquidity by borrowing, use your, your Bitcoin as collateral. And the great thing is that you don't need to entrust someone with your funds. Again, it's held in a multi-sig escrow where your collateral, your collateral remains there, locked in escrow, and you control one of the keys to it. Uh, if you have some stable coins laying around, you want to get some yield on that. If you're a stable coin guy or girl, Landed Hoddle Hoddle. This product also offers a way for you to get return on on those stable coins. So go create your offers and set your own terms at lend.hodlhodl.com. That's L-E-N-D dot H-O-D-L H-O-D-L dot com. Go check it out. These are incredible products. The whole sweep. Love our sponsors. Thank you guys for sponsoring us. Thank you for joining us. Beware of stairs. Help, I've fallen and I can't get up. I, I literally had to like scream that to my wife last night. It's not fun. Take care of yourselves. Watch where you're stepping. And enjoy this episode with Kelly Lennon. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Probably should be. You probably should be. One. Kelly Lannon, everybody. Oh, what's up, Uncle Marty? Glad to be here. Glad to have you. Uh, one of the tallest Bitcoins I've, Bitcoiners I've ever met in person. I, I would like to take that mantle, but unfortunately, uh, Ryan Gentry's got me by like an inch and a half. Even with my cowboy boots on, that was not that was not fair. And I told him that he didn't provide uh, sufficient notice. Otherwise, I would have worn taller ones. <laughs> I met you too, I believe, on the same day in person. Yeah. Uh, uh, block boom. boom. Yeah. What uh? What's going on? We were just talking about the climate hysterics uh, and their attacks on Bitcoin, and you were going into uh, God Sod's book, uh, "The Parasitic Mind." What what is wrong with these people? So, uh, kind of the premise of God Sod's book is that there are infectious ideas. 
and that like a parasite, these ideas kind of take over the host essentially. So for the climate hysterics who decided to hit the red button this morning and uh, wake up Bitcoin Twitter, um, it's this notion that no matter what they believe, they're always right. And that just because they have the idea, not necessarily that the idea is accurate or reflected in reality, it's just that they're right. So uh, it's synonymous with wokeness, with uh, the energy FUD, with Bitcoin FUD. So the guys like Neuro, Rubini, Peter Schiff, you know, they, they have the, uh, uh, the Bitcoin hate parasite going on. Can the parasite be avoided? Do we have mental parasites ourselves as Bitcoiners? Uh, it's certainly possible, but it's more, it's more of a, a situation where you're totally ignoring reality. So you're, you're creating your own bubble and your own reality and you live in essentially uh, an echo chamber, but your echo chamber doesn't jive with the outside world at all. So I think Bitcoin is a good example, especially like in the energy FUD, you know, these guys are going, especially, you know, you with GAM are going out to these, uh, uh, these oil and gas companies and saying, hey, don't put that methane in the air. Let's burn it, turn it into CO2, turn it into some plant food, and we're going to mine Bitcoin while we're at it. Everybody's happier. So that, I think that's a, reflect, a reflection of a reality-based mindset, whereas like the energy fudsters are like, oh, we're boiling the oceans and, uh, you know, more fossil fuels is bad and all these other things. Yeah, hard the ocean's boiling. I actually live right down the street from me at Beach. Walked down with my son this morning to check on the ocean. Looked pretty cold to me. Uh, yeah, you didn't have to take an extra step to get to the ocean, though, did you? You're a little no. worried that it's receding. No. Yeah. <laughs> it was high tide, and and the tide was uh was where it usually is at high tide. Oh, what a what a shame. We're gonna get canceled for this. Uh, We're that's get canceled, okay. Kelly. I hope I I'm, I'm just waiting to to get canceled yeah uh, well you know at least it'll make it for an entertaining day on uh, twitter right well it's uh i'm not trying to get canceled but it's just again like nobody brings common sense or, or logic to this argument like i like yesterday's bent that i wrote it was just about like our detractors bitcoin's detractors not me and you personally they don't do the research to understand actually like what's working or how bitcoin works and the intri intricacies of the network the incentive systems uh, the the way in which Bitcoin miners go to seek out the lowest cost of energy production that tends to be wasted energy and significantly uh, renewable when you compare it to other, I think every other industry in the world, when you compare Bitcoin mining to every other industry, it has by a percentage basis, the most penetration of renewable energy. Like it's, it's mind blowing. Well, I guess uh, better, better busy than bored. What's uh, what's what's the name of the the law where you it takes an order of magnitude more work to to uh, disprove bullshit than it does to create it? Yeah, I don't know the name of the law, but it's a great one and it's very true. Yeah. Um, I think I just I just I'm I'm like gotten to the point where it's just LOL HFSP. Uh, yeah, I liked uh, I like the the South Park Cartman tears this morning. I think that's the the proper response going forward. Yeah, just give me feed me your tears. <laughs> Uh, we're not here to talk and give attention to the climate hysterics, even though we just spent the first five minutes of this recording doing that. We're here to talk about Bitcoin urbanism. Yeah. It's so a it's a fascinating 
newsletter that you've been writing a fascinating topic one i've been fascinated about for years now and have written about not bitcoin urbanism specifically but the the uh, potential to bring better aesthetics and city planning and urban planning to the world under a bitcoin standard how did you get fascinated with this topic and and be so driven to to write a newsletter about it uh well so i uh i do real estate as a profession so i'm a i'm a developer i'm an evil developer marty i come into your neighborhood i buy old buildings or sites and i go to the city council and i say i'm going to build a tower or whatever you will reasonably let me do and then i piss off all the neighbors and i get some sort of approval then i build it and then fill it with people and sell it so um my dad is a uh or was a home builder here in phoenix he came out here in the 80s got his start in real estate and uh, uh you know so i basically grew up on a job site sweeping streets and I, I like to say i never really got grounded i just got sent to the job site so uh, you know that was a, a formative experience if you've never dug a ditch with a tweaker i recommend not doing it at all <laughs> um but yeah, so I've always been interested in real estate. You know, there's pictures of me as a kid building sandcastles or, you know, Legos or all that. So I've always been fascinated by it. I probably should have been an architect growing up if my dad, uh, you know, at dinner didn't say those fucking architects or these consultants every day and just thinking to myself like, well, maybe I don't want to do that. <laughs> but uh, after college, I, I started doing it full time. Um, that was right around, let's see, I moved back from Colorado to Arizona, 2008, the summer of 2008, when shit really hit the fan. And my first job was driving uh, all over Phoenix, um, looking at these foreclosure, the foreclosed homes, right? So back in the day when it all started, they would do like an auction once a month and it'd be like 1200 homes that they would do over the course of like two or three days. So they'd publish the list in advance. I would drive around and basically fill out uh, like an inspection sheet, essentially. So I got to know Phoenix very well. Um, and to, I guess to give the freaks an idea, it, it, I could only do 10 or 11 homes a day. And that's, that's basically how big Phoenix is. And I had, you know, Google Maps, I would plan out my whole trip for that day, trying to get all this stuff done. And it would take me six days. I'd be doing it for six days a week. It was crazy. But so anyways, so I continued on and then uh, uh, I had always been a fan of uh, Manhattan, you know, photos and stuff like that. I had been there once as a kid. Uh, can you hear that? Yeah, I can, but it's fun. Is your oh, dog yeah. humping something? No, that's my cat. I forgot the cat. Um, so anyway, so I went there as an adult for... Um, uh, a blockchain real estate deal back in the day. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I was just absolutely fascinated. Like the way I describe it, I guess the only way it made sense to me is that I walked around and looked at all these old buildings in the West Village and all that. And uh, like these buildings just sung to me. So I was like, damn. And like shortly thereafter, I just started doing some research. And uh, oh my goodness, can you hear that? I can, but oh, it's fine. It's whatever. Okay. I, I, I played with the cat and everything to chill him out and gave him some treats. He usually falls asleep, but I guess not. Um, anyways, so shortly thereafter, I started doing some research about like, why, why doesn't 
uh, Phoenix look like Manhattan. Like all these buildings are old. Phoenix, everything is new. All these buildings are like a hundred feet apart. And like, what the hell's going on? So that was about the time that I found Strong Towns. Um, and I know you've had Chuck on the podcast. And uh, so I did like a deep dive into like, you know, how we started and how we got here kind of thing. And um, I was just absolutely fascinated. Okay. Oh my goodness. <laughs> don't, don't worry about it. It's fine. Okay. So uh, I was just absolutely fascinated by it. And I just started reading everything that he had written, basically starting from like 2011 going forward. And I was just like, oh my God, everything is so fucked up. So from my perspective, I'm the one basically, you know, buying land and then putting the plans together, site plans, building plans, all this other stuff, taking it to the city, getting approvals, all that. And I began to look at my plans and I'm like, oh my goodness. So in, in development, you, you have what's called lot coverage, right? So let's say that you live in like a single family house and your, your uh, plot of land is like 10,000 square feet, right? So you're limited to like a third of that to build on. And there's all these other rules that, I mean, like it's insane, the quantity of rules. So, um, uh, so yeah, so I, I had found that. And then recently before, I guess before that, I had read Saifedean's book, Bitcoin Standard. And that's kind of like what got me kicked off into uh, the Bitcoin maxi lifestyle. Because before that I was in uh, trying to do like real estate blockchain stuff, just trying to figure out like how, how is this going to affect what I do? Um, you know, there, maybe there's an opportunity for me to get in here just because, you know, I've always been, you know, kind of tech, kind of techie. I'm not a coder or programmer or anything, but, you know, I, I can build my own computer. That's about the extent. So then I just thought to myself, it's like, well, if we take Bitcoin's sound monetary principles and properties and all the, just the whole umbrella of things that go into it, and we apply it to the built environment, which is basically the whole process of, you know, uh, real estate development. And then on top of that city planning, you know, on top of that, all the infrastructure, maintaining it, basically like if you go outside and you walk into another building, all the things on earth that had to happen before you could do that, that, that encompass, you know, encompasses like the built environment. So it's like, okay, what did the world look like on a sound, sound money standard in the built environment? And um, that kind of, I guess, I got way more into it in like 2019 to the point where I was talking to friends and family and all this other stuff and they, they just couldn't take it anymore. Um, you know, I tried, to, uh, I tried to pitch my dad this, uh, this stuff just because he's been doing it for so long. And I had, uh, it was funny, I invited him into my office and I have like a, a mobile whiteboard and I had all this information on it and I was like trying to walk him through it. And he was just had like zero interest. And I was just like, God damn it, dad, this is, this is affecting everything that we do. We got to get on, got to get on this train and try and change everything. And he's like, nah, nah, th this doesn't make any sense. It's not working. I'm like, okay. So that was kind of a downer, but then I decided that like, well, maybe if, uh, Maybe, you know, if, if my family and friends don't want to listen to me, maybe, you know, Bitcoin, Twitter will. So I had started something um, I always wanted to write. And uh, I just kind of like tested the waters, writing stuff for myself, seeing if I could, you know, actually write. Um, but uh, it was actually a bit block boom. 
uh, and Ryan Gentry, again, I was telling him, we were sitting at the bar. He was asking me what I do and all this stuff. And then he asked me what I did in Bitcoin. And I said, well, I don't really do anything in Bitcoin, but I'm trying to figure out like how this will affect real estate. And I've got some ideas and all this other stuff. And he basically said to quit being a pansy and just write. And I said, <laughs> oh yeah, that's probably, that's probably a good idea. And uh, he's like, no, seriously, just, just do it. He's like, no one's going to care. Like if you're wrong, you know, you just change your, change your ideas to fit, you know, how Bitcoin works or reality. He goes, people will help you. He goes, it's a very, you know, other than being a quote unquote toxic space, you know, lots of disagreeable people, but at the same time, it's not, it's, it's uh, I would say it's more constructive criticism. If you have thick enough skin to, you know, take the, take the punches and roll with it. And if so, you, and if you approach stuff like earnestly, right. Not Yeah. And it's uh, so that's kind of what I did. So I decided to approach it from uh, the point of view of an exploration and uh, yeah, I, I kind of just started rolling from there. I think my, my first couple articles were pretty rough, but uh, I, I have a newfound respect for the writers, especially you writing every day. I'm thinking to myself like, Oh man, I do like three a week and I'm over here just sweating trying to get some of this stuff off my mind, but, uh, it comes muscle yeah, it's, memory. it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Now it's, it's good. It's definitely getting easier. And, um, I took, I took a lesson from you just saying that, you know, seeing something on Bitcoin Twitter or seeing something out and about that, like everything is an opportunity to write about something and that yeah. you can relate it. Um, especially when it comes to Bitcoin and money, it's like, you know, prices are the, the information that allows all of this stuff to happen. So yeah, it's, I pinch myself every day that, you know, Bitcoin exists and that this is where we are. Yeah. Well, I'm happy you're writing about it because your content's very good and funny oh, too. You, you got thank you. I, oh, goodness. The newsletter. I, uh, I guess that's just more of my personality. Like if I, if I'm reading something and like, there isn't like just a, a wisecracker or something witty, you know, every once in a while, I just, I literally just start to nod off. So, um, yeah, I'd like to throw, throw some in there. See, see what everybody thinks. Uh, I would say probably the most, the most, not the most recent one, but the one that you had tweeted out probably has, uh, uh, the most wisecracks of all of them, but, uh, I wanted to put it out there to see how it went. Yeah. Well, that's why I had to like DM you the, uh, the one because <laughs> I laughed so hard after reading it. Yeah, the transphobic bathrooms from 100 years ago in the middle of the street. <laughs> yeah, uh, they're not. They weren't thinking. They weren't woke enough in Indianapolis no, back in the day. Oh my goodness! Oh well, my goodness. Let's jump into like the meat of the topic, like Bitcoin urbanism, and and dive into like the strong towns thesis and how you believe this can help out. I guess we could start with like the public the public spaces article that you wrote. And yeah, so so the the idea of public spaces is that, um, and I guess for, for all the freaks listening, we're, we're going to, we're going to jump back and forth between like today, 2020, and then we'll go back like a hundred years. So that's, that's our time frame in context where we're talking. Um, things weren't built uh, for financial purposes. So like today, everything that is built and everything that is done is done for financial purposes. It's a financialization game. So uh, buildings are the way they are. They look the way they are. Uh, you know, they're missing all the details. They're covered in glass. All of this stuff is for financial reasons. So um, it's basically the only way that you can build something and keep costs down and then be within, 
you know, essentially a cap rate. Um, but back in the day, things were built and done for the public environment for, it was basically like a public enjoyment, right? So if you went outside and you had to be outside in public space, the idea was that like, well, if you've got to see all this stuff, you might as well make it attractive and it might as well serve a purpose, right? It has to serve a purpose and it has to be beautiful. So that if you're going into these spaces, because you have to remember, most people spent uh, their time working outside. They're, they, were, they weren't behind a computer. Um, you know, they went to and from their jobs. Usually they just walked, you know, even Why? though the cars were around. I know it's crazy, right? You couldn't, you couldn't imagine doing that today. Um, so you would walk or then, um, you know, I think I was trying to remember. I wish I had the, the link to the page, but most... Uh, like 90% of all Americans back in the day were self-employed. So you didn't have people going from their home to basically one giant office, right? Or a giant place of work, essentially, where everybody's centralized in these little spots, you know, hundreds or thousands of people at a time. So, you know, everybody's out and about. And um, if you're in these public spaces, it's like, well, you know, let's, let's make it something to behold. Um, you know, Detroit used to be called the, the uh, Paris of the Midwest. Um, uh, St. Louis, St. Louis was basically in a class of its own, Kansas City. All of these places were beautiful to just walk around and enjoy. And um, that kind of leans into, uh, I always show um, uh, two, two authors I like. Um, Ann Sussman and uh, Justin Hollander, Hollander, they wrote a book called Cognitive Architecture. So, you know, classical architects basically use designs that, uh, you know, were tried and tested over time and that they evoked a certain emotion in you, right? Or that you could observe things from different distances, right? So if you look at like a cathedral, which is a major public, um, uh, what's the word? Not, a, not an icon, but uh, essentially a staple in public, right? You mm -hmm. could observe the, the form from different perspectives. So if you're, if you're a mile away, you can tell that it's a cathedral, right? Or if you're 100 feet away, then you can start seeing the details. And if you're within 10 feet, then you can see everything. So buildings were designed so that they're beautiful from afar, you know, from, from near and then basically up close. And as it turns out, you know, with all the science and all the abilities that we have to monitor people's brains, that actually does have a physical effect on people. So the idea that beauty is subjective is absolute garbage. Um, so in the, in the public space, it's like, okay, we know from a classical standpoint that people are essentially emotionally moved when they see something beautiful, right? So the shapes, the, the shapes, uh, the bio, uh, uh, it's called bio, biophilic. Yeah. So like the biological nature of shapes and the human experience over time, evolution, all of these things have an effect on people. So when you're in the physical, when you're in uh, uh, the public space and you see buildings or you see monuments or, you know, like the comfort station that I wrote about, you know, all of these things are are having an effect on you and like, you may not know it. Like, I don't know. Are you familiar with the uh, uh, red letter media? They did the original, um, 
uh, review of the the Star Wars uh, episodes one, two, and three? I don't think so. I don't believe so. Uh, it's absolutely hilarious. But um, they have a saying where it says, uh, you didn't notice it, but your brain did. So okay. it's one of those things where it's a subconscious occurrence, but it derives in your conscious as pleasure. So when you go outside and you walk around and you see like these buildings that are basically just four sides of glass, your brain literally ignores all of that. Just like you don't, like you don't see it. Like it's not, it might as well not, it's physically there, but there's nothing for your eyes to look at. Whereas if you, if you go and you stand in front of, you know, a a cathedral built, you know, at the end of the 19th century, your, your eyes are occupied. Your brain is occupied by all, all of the details. So whether that's the statues or the design on the door or even, you know, the steps, what does the bull nose on the steps look like? Like your brain notices all of that stuff and it has an effect on you. Um, so yeah, that's kind of that's kind of the the built environment. You know, it's a lot better than all the the public art that we have today. Like for example, when I live in uh, Scottsdale, and like two blocks from me, um, there's uh, public art, and it's literally like a wireframe rabbit, and it's fucking twenty feet tall. Probably got commissioned for hundreds um, of thousands of dollars. Oh, I bet it was millions of dollars. And it's just like thinking to myself, like, you know, I I cry like a little bit inside every time I see that, because I know that like, I know that observing it, my brain literally does not see it. So, you know, what could have been better there? You know, uh, uh, a figure on an obelisk, you know, 20 feet in the air, 50 feet in the air, like Winfield Scott, the guy who founded the city. Um, It's just like, none of these things are really taught or talked about anymore. Oh. It's just uh, with, with the work that Ancestment and Justin Hollander are doing, it's like they're, they're going into the built environment and they're actually tracking this stuff. You know, they're able to show that like, okay, well, if you've got a window here, a window here and a door, like you, here's your eye patterns, here's what you're looking at. And then we can look at your brain and see, you know, if, if like the, uh, what areas of your brain are firing. And then like, here's a, uh, you know, a 21st century building. And then it's literally just like blank. Yeah. It's crazy. And you brought up Manhattan as somebody who lived in Manhattan and Brooklyn for six years, seven years almost. Yeah. It's crazy. Like, so when I transition, like seeing like the West village is my favorite part of the city by, yeah, by absolutely. far. Like it is like the way it's so romantic. It's everything's old, best bars, best vibe best food in my opinion like it's and it's just because it's beautiful it's like walking like my wife and i lived in williamsburg and williamsburg there's shit everywhere it's all like <laughs> houses row homes built in the 80s with shitty siding and we just mm-hmm. get on the l train rip it to to eighth ave get out and walk through the west village and that was like our favorite thing to do but then like also like living in williamsburg and we were a block away from the east river so we'd be able to when we didn't venture into Manhattan, we'd, we'd walk along the East River a lot. And you can see it very visibly from the East River, like sitting in Williamsburg, looking over at Manhattan, just the the combination of all these beautiful old buildings and these terribly built new buildings <laughs> that just like, there's one particular too, like on 
uh, I, I believe it's on like the the edge of Central Park, the southern edge. It's just like got all these blocks sticking out and just like sticks out like a sore thumb in the skyline. It's like, why the fuck did somebody build that building? It's, it angers yeah. you, like you said, like it makes you cry yeah. a little bit inside. Like, why are you going to destroy the skyline? Well, I, I think that's a, a good segue, especially when you're so like the row houses that, that that you lived in. You know, you can tell, like you can tell that this this was not constructed to the same level as uh, something in the West village. And it's like, to me, it's like, okay, doing construction. Like I understand, first of all, I understand like why that was that way or that it was built that way rather. And then knowing the time frame, it's like, okay, well, let's bring it into the monetary discussion. Let's bring it into the credit cycles. What did the credit cycle look like at this time? You know, so I can walk into a house in Phoenix and tell you, you know, with when it was built within a couple of years. So like a house that was built in like 2006 and let's say that it's just been, it's been cleaned and taken care of, but like nothing's changed. Like they haven't changed the light fixtures. Uh, they haven't changed the appliances, the countertops, cabinets, all that stuff. You can basically walk into that and see like, this is literally all the cheapest shit that they could possibly find. And they stuck it in here and they literally sold it peak at the market. And their margin was probably like 25% on this house just absolutely insane but then if you go to a different period let's say you went to like 2000 it uh like the media we're all talking like median home stuff we're not going any any one direction or another you can see that there's there's more details like on the front of the building or when you get inside there's more interior details the countertops will be nicer the layouts a little bit more comfortable um things like that so it's it's crazy to see how fiat money and essentially like this, a symptom of that, the substitution effect with materials plays into like the built environment. Cause just like you said, you can look, you can look across the East river into Manhattan and you can guess about when some of this stuff was built. So like if it was built, um, you know, if it had to be built in like the seventies, it's probably going to be, you know, sands a few details, or if it's built, like in uh, the late eighties with the, uh, before the bust, you know, they're going to use, it's basically just going to be a tall, you know, narrow rectangle. They're going to use as much space as possible because these guys are getting paid, you know, buku bucks per do, you know, per square foot that they're building. So they're going to, they're going to try and get, you know, it's the Donald Trump thing. He's going to try and get every square inch of buildable space that he possibly can because it is worth so damn much. And the question is, why is it worth so damn much? It's like, well, the cost of capital is like nothing at the time. So, you know, now you've got a malinvestment where you're doing things that normally you wouldn't otherwise do. And uh, for today, it's like, you know, rates are back at 0%. Um, the, the third, well, I guess it's the 10 year. So mortgages, 30 year mortgages are essentially priced off the 10 year uh, US treasury. So mortgages are back above um, 3% for a 30 year fixed loan. Uh, it got all the way down to like, I think maybe 2.65 or 2.68, something like that, which is like unheard of. That's almost like what the fed says inflation is. I mean, you and I know it's like eight or 10%, but it's like, what in the world is going on? Um, and then for construction, it's like the last year has been absolutely insane. Like my lumber prices, when I started building uh, the condo project that we're working on now, 
I was buying two by, so a unit of two by six is 189 pieces. Um, I was buying two by six for, I think it was like 350 bucks per thousand square feet. So it's like, I don't know. I don't want to do that math. Maybe it's like a thousand bucks, right? Now it cost me 5,000 bucks for that same, that same unit of wood. I mean, yeah, it's just crazy. I mean, it's one of those things where you can sign a contract all day long, but then you get a call from your lumber guy or the gal or whoever's working over there and just saying, yeah, sorry. Um, we can't fulfill your contract because, you know, this uh, giant ass builder came over here and wrote me a check for 10% above market. So that was your lumber. Thanks for playing. Holy shit. It's just like, what on earth is going on? So all of these, all of these financial ma- manipulations, you know, they, they have second and third order effects. You know, I've, my, my last building that I've literally been trying to get built and framed for six or seven months is just an absolute slog. And when it comes to monetary policy, if you've got somebody that can turn the levers, like th- this has real world effects, you know, it has real world effects. It's gotten to a point where uh, I was actually on site uh, yesterday and our insurance inspector showed up and it's like, I don't know, just after nine. And we kind of looked at him like, you know, what the hell are you doing here? We didn't call you. Like the last thing that you want is just an inspector just showing up to your property saying, Hey, how's it going? It's like, I didn't call you. <laughs> what do you want? Uh, and he's just straight up. He's like, Oh no, I was just driving by on my way home. I'm done for the day. And we were like, what, you know, even in construction in Phoenix, you can't start, uh, till like 6am or whatever. So mm-hmm. this guy had driven to nine jobs over the course of three hours. And he said he was done. And we're like, well, what, what happened? He goes, well, nobody's working. I go, well, what do you mean? Nobody's working. It's a, it's a boom. He goes, materials prices are so out of hand that a lot of the general contractors and owners have basically just put their sites on hold. And he goes from, you know, small jobs, big jobs, you know, our, our job might be like 10 or 15 million. You know, he may go look at 120, $150 million deal, you know, which has dozens of buildings that he's got to go through and look at different things. Um, but he's just like, yeah, no, they just, you know, nobody, nobody's working because they can't get any material or the material prices are so out of hand. Um, that uh, some of these owners can't raise additional equity or they're just going to wait it out. And it's like, wow, that, that went from a boom to uh, maybe on hold bust like real fast. Yeah, so it's not good. What are, what are the materials guys saying? No. Like, is it lack of supply uh, or just the, the demand shot up way too high last year as people bought new houses and got them remodeled? Uh, it, it'd be both. So, yeah, right. <laughs> and that, that is a part of it. Like the, um, uh, Marty. with the lockdowns, yeah, with, with the lockdowns. No, I didn't mean that. I like with the, I'm with the lockdowns it. and stuff like that. So people have been staying at home and, um, companies like Home Depot and Lowe's literally can't keep the shelves stocked because all of these people are spending time at home. They're not paying for gas. They've got, uh, on extra somewhere between an hour and a half and two hours a day extra, because that's normally what the average person spends to uh, driving to and from work, 45 minutes to work an hour home. And um, so they've got all this extra time. They're stuck at home. They finish their work early because it, 
uh, I, I wish I had saved some of these links, but I read a deal where people are accomplishing their work in like 60 or 65% of the normal time. So now they have all this free time, they're stuck at home, so they might as well fix their house, right? Or do something that, you know, that they normally um, would have hired a contractor to do or wouldn't have had time to do. So in conjunction with that, then you have all the stuff that we get from China, which is uh, FYI, basically everything for everybody that's listening. And that had like a serious effect on our buildings. So, you know, all of the, the plumbing PVC, like the fire PVC. So like for your fire sprinklers, that's a different kind of PVC. Um, uh, the cast iron parts, uh, all, almost all of the electrical components, your breakers, all, all of these things are coming from China. So then we started getting phone calls probably in like June or July last year. And they're like, yeah, so we, there, there's literally nothing available because it's coming from China or it's stuck on ships. And I'm sorry, but I, I, there's nothing for me to do for like the next month. So you're sitting here and wondering to yourself like, oh my goodness, like, is this what this whole year is going to be like? So then it started that, okay, well, since it's not coming from China, we'll pay a little bit more to buy all this, you know, all the American versions. Cause it's like 25 or 30% more expensive. So then that started happening and then those prices started going up. So that led into the lumber problem. So lumber originally, I want to say in like in May or June, lumber fell by like 60%. And that was just on like the normal prices that I had been paying. Cause I got a, a proposal for a new project at the time. And it was like, it was like $65,000 to build 16, condos like that's like nothing and i was like okay well this is crazy and um i was trying to sort out what had happened with my current job because basically a whole building's worth of lumber was missing from the proposal which is always fun and um i was like hey we gotta we gotta fix this and literally within the span of two weeks lumber comes roaring back not only does it come roaring back it's like 50 percent above what the previous high was and it's like Okay, that's kind of messed up. And it literally just kept going, just kept going up and up and up and away. And uh, that was kind of like when I started calling my my lumber supplier, and I'm like, hey, I, you know, I got to get these uh, this material, these beams, this plywood, all of this stuff. And he's like, Kelly, it doesn't exist. He goes, since everything slumped down so far, all of these manu uh, all of these mills basically just started turning off in the northwest. So they don't really have any intentions of bringing them back on quite yet, even though lumber prices are out of control. It's like, oh, well, that's nice. And um, uh, so then like lumber just kept going, like it's doubled since then. And it's like, have they turned on those mills yet? Cause that would be awful nice. And they're like, no, not really. And then you've got the Trump put the, the tariffs oh, or the ban on, well, I, cause they're, they're just printing money. There's nowhere else to get lumber. Yeah. Because, like I was just about to say, the uh, I think Trump put a, a tariff on Canadian lumber. So there's like zero lumber coming across the border right now. Okay. And uh, yeah, so my, my final shipment of, uh, I got four units of two by six by 12, took me two and a half weeks to get. So it's just... It's nutty out there. And again, that goes back to the monetary discussion where it's like, if you, you lower the price to do all these things, you know, it's not, 
and uh, you lower the price to do all these things. And all of these builders have all of these projects on deck and you know, they literally just sign the contract and say, deliver lumber now. And the whole world does it all at once. And of course there's not enough lumber. So it's crazy. It's making me angry. Oh yeah. I just, I got a lot. I know you can't really see it, but I got lots of gray hairs. Externalities exist. Yep. Who would have thunk it? Oh man. When did end the stop? Well, I, uh, I'm a, a big fan of this thing called Bitcoin, Marty. You may have heard of it. And I think with Bitcoin, we can get rid of, um, a lot of these, a lot of these issues. So, you know, in, in the Bitcoin urbanism sense, it's like, um, well, I guess we'll, we'll talk about like strong towns, just a quick reminder for the freaks. So strong towns has a couple, a couple of different things that they have written and discovered, or not, I guess rediscovered probably be the correct way to think about it. So there's the idea of the suburban experiment, which is that when we build stuff today, we build everything all at once to a finished state. So like if you live in a house or an apartment or whatever, before anybody could live there, it had to be like 100% done. The sidewalks had to be done. The, uh, uh, like the landscaping had to be done and installed and manicured, watered, all of these things. That never used to be the case, right? You used to build a block at a time and you may or may not have um, a sidewalk or you may or may not have uh, pavement. You know, you may not have a storm sewer in the middle of the street to collect rainwater. So it's, it's much different today than it was a hundred years ago, even. So when you have to do all of these things and build all of these things, these streets for uh, home subdivisions and all this stuff like this, that, that costs a lot of money. So all of these costs are rolled into the house. So when somebody goes to buy a house, if you go and buy a new house in the subdivision, like you're not just paying for your house, you paid for all of the infrastructure, you know, the, uh, the community pool, the community building, you know, all the streets, all the sidewalks, everything. Like you paid for that. And that never used to be the case. Like you may build like one house next to the other, you know, as you go, and then that may be a block and then you have a new street and then you build, you know, 60 feet away from the other house that gives you your street, your right away and all that. And you just did it like one at a time. Like it was a slow expansion outward and then a slow growth upward over time. So that's, that's the traditional development model. That's incremental growth, right? Slow, slow changes over time, basically either to meet um, the market needs or your own needs. Today, it's like, no, no, you got to do everything all at once. So that's, that's kind of where we are. So that's only possible with cheap debt because let's say me as the builder right i can only i can only build to sell at a certain price so let's say that uh the median i, I just did this like the median cost of a house is like three hundred fifty thousand dollars, right so if i'm building a new house usually those will cost a little bit more so let's say it's four hundred thousand dollars it might cost like a hundred thousand dollars of that four hundred thousand to put in all of the infrastructure. And not only that, after I'm done, I have to give that to the city. So then the city's responsible for taking care of all of that, which gets into the mess of, okay, how much money does the city make? You know, do they have, are they planning to repair and fix all this stuff? 
you know, in the, in the, the life cycle of 25 to 30 years when all of this stuff starts breaking? Short answer is no. But, you know, I couldn't do that. I couldn't build that $400,000 house unless I knew that you, Marty, could get a loan to buy this house with 30-year mortgage at 3%. And that, that is solely dictated, what you can pay is solely dictated by essentially your, your monthly income, right? So they look at your W-2s, then they look at your, your debt, what's your uh, debt to income ratios, like all of these things. So it's basically like, what can you afford on a monthly basis to buy a house? So then I have to work it backwards essentially and say, okay, can I, can I afford to put in a 30 foot wide street or do I need to like try and get a 25 foot street passed by the city? And it's like, you know, those are the things that uh, builders have to think about when it comes to um, this whole, this whole mess. So with, with Bitcoin, you're forced, you're forced to operate this way. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. I would say, there's most, most of the development code is controlled locally. So there's a court case back in the day, uh, Euclid versus Amber Realty. And uh, I encourage the freaks to go look at the Wikipedia page and read it because, you know, if, if the stuff I've told you so far is aggravating, you've got to look up the, the, um, the justice's opinion on why, like why the city has the right to tell you what to do with your property. And it's, it literally boils down to, we think growth is growing too fast and too crazy. And someone, someone's got to do something. So local communities, local governments, that that's your problem. So that's where we are today. So when you go and try to build something, unless it's, you know, uh, the state tries to intervene. Oh, shit. Sorry. Unless the state's trying to intervene, um, which some of them do, like Pennsylvania actually is. Uh, I talked to a developer from Pennsylvania on New Year's and he was telling me the horror stories. So the horror stories that I have to go through with the county, he goes through at the state level, which takes him like, you know, 18 months to get plans reviewed and approved, and which takes like two or three uh, submittals, which is insane. But, you know, there's not so much at the federal level unless you end up in the uh, EPA's target in a wetland. So when you go and try and build something, it's basically all controlled locally. Like they have international codes and stuff that they've adopted, but these things are essentially, you know, large cities that come together and say, hey, this is what we're doing. Oh yeah, that's what you're doing. Okay, let's incorporate that. And then everybody follows these same rules. So that, that's how that stuff kind of came to be. Um, and that's why, you know, everything looks the same pretty much everywhere. Uh, not from like a, uh, an aesthetics, you know, standpoint, but like, you know, if you, if you went to, uh, I don't know, maybe like that your house where you are, maybe your electrical socket is 18 inches above the floor. Right. So that's like a standard code. That's, that's kind of the thing that I'm talking about. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm so then from going to say, I'm currently living in like, like a cookie cutter shore house. Like, yeah plastic siding like cheap material <laughs> like only gonna like yeah i mean that. it's just like, and then, yeah it's crazy. new jersey and then like another code too like uh, my aunt and uncle live on on the bay and they have a dock on the bay and they, they recently like um uh, five years ago they replaced their dock 
and dock um, on the bay and fucking state, I believe, or the county, like had a drone fly over the bay and like taking pictures yep. to make sure it wasn't code. And they were by like a foot and they had to get it replaced again. It was like, what the fuck? Yep. Like they can do that. Oh, yeah. It was like not affecting anything, not affecting any book or or anything so you you used to get away with a lot of things before uh uh like all the gis maps started coming out so you know uh the military puts the satellites up in space and they take the high resolution photos well they started selling those photos to municipalities because the municipalities could find figure out that that they could they could see who was doing things that were against code so like if you if you built a shed in your backyard without you know uh, proper approval citizen well you got to find and they could prove it because they just take they'd send you a photo an aerial photo of your house and say this is not an approved structure um, and since you've already built it you need to prove that you complied with all of the the codes and ordinances and if not uh, you need to demolish it and start over it's just like what like oh my goodness this is like my tool shed that i built in my spare time you know, the last year. And it's like, yeah, no, sorry. Um, here's your thousand dollar fine. And now you start over. What the? That's so, do we, are we free freaks? Ah, uh, are we fucking free? No, no can't freaks. Build a tool shed. No. <laughs> I mean, you can go, so like, uh, uh, like you can go to Home Depot and you see the the tool the sheds and stuff that you can buy and take to your house. Those are always within like the minimum uh, uh, square footage. So like if it's more than like you know twenty square feet, then you're getting into some you know some dangerous territory, citizen. Where's your permits? Um, but uh, yeah, the I, and I, I talk about this on Twitter with uh, people. People would be absolutely amazed at the level of control that local governments have over your property like your house you know um what dollar not not so much the color but like what your how big your doors can be your window placement i mean even like down to like some of the material you use so like when i when i take a project through the city you know i go through the development review board which used to be called the design review board, but that's, you know, had to change that. And um, it's one of those things where it's like, well, I don't, I don't like that color. And these are, you know, seven people up on the board. Usually there's one council member that sits over it. And then all of these other people are, are nominated by uh, council people or the mayor or whoever. And it's like, okay, well, I don't like that color. It's like, well, why not? It's like, well, I, I don't know. I just don't like it. You should change it. That's the conversation. Then they vote. Usually, you know, it's a political process. So they'll vote one way or another. You know, it's kind of a, if if you've got a split decision board, then, you know, you may have to politic a little bit. And like, that's, that's building and development today. Um, there's just so much bullshit. It's just, it's so centrally planned all the way down. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And that, that's uh, one of the long articles and stuff that I uh, wanted to write. And uh, I had originally, uh, I think it was safe to know, it was a long time ago. He had said something on Twitter and I was like, Hey, I'll like, this is what I do. I'll send you an email. So I sent him an email 
And it ended up taking me like two hours to write because I was just, every time I wrote something, I was like, oh yeah, then I got to go through this step. And then I got to go through this step. And then this is what happens if they disprove it. I have to go back to step three. And like, it just, like, it takes me anywhere for a year to 18 months just to get through like the initial process, just to get city council approval. This isn't like my construction plans being reviewed and approved or anything. This is just like, hey, this is my site plan. These are what the buildings are going to look like. These are the floor plans. And this is how it's laid out on the property. That's it. So um, yeah, just the, the level of control and the total bureaucracy. I always say that the Soviet Politburo Bureau would be uh, envious of the level of control that local cities have over what happens on people's property. Um, and I, I really, truly believe that. It's just... It's crying shame anymore. That's why everything looks the same. That's why, um, uh, essentially, that's why everything is uh, centralizing. I, you know, you could say centralizing, but it's basically commercializing. So why, you know, why there's only um, franchise operations, right? Because they know that they can comply with all of this stuff. They've got cookie cutter plans and general forms and stuff that they like to use, and they can just plop it down on a piece of land. Whereas, like, if you were just a layman. You know, if you just went in there and say, hey, I bought a piece of land, I want to build a house. Like these people don't help you. Like when you go to the city, you know, people think that, you know, the, the guy behind the counter is going to help you. But you have to realize that you're like the 10th person that's come in and done that today. And he is so tired of having to have the same conversation over that he says, here's the link. Here's the link to the design standards and policy manual. Uh, read this and then come back. Well, it's like that thing's like this, this big. It's huge. It's inches. Inches. Or, inches thick. Now it's, yeah. it's PDF page, so it doesn't really matter. It's like 800 pages with all of the, uh, you know, the footnotes and the call outs to all these other different things and the details and stuff that you have to use. Um, I mean, like a simple example would be like a fence footing, right? So the city has a fence footing detail that you have to use. So then you've got to print that out and include that with your plans and all this other stuff like um, New York City is a pretty good example because they have, there's a whole profession uh, called expediters. And they are the ones that like, if I'm a developer, I get all my plans and stuff ready to go and I want to submit it to the city. Well, I, I don't submit it to the city. I hire an expediter, expediter goes through my plans, make sure I have everything. And then they go down to the city and then they deal with all of that, all of the submittals because they may submit something um, to the city and uh you know, the guy at the counter say, well, well, you, where's your form 17 dash five. He's like, oh, well, I don't need that because according to this, you know, I have a form five dash seven. It's like these people, like that's their whole job is to make sure that you can actually submit plans and that they get through the city in a timely manner and that there's no BS red lines and all this other stuff because these, this process takes like months. The opportunity cost of, economic activity yeah what yeah expeditors be doing like product okay so let's go back to that the four hundred thousand dollar house example right let's say it cost me you know you know like i said a hundred thousand dollars in infrastructure for the subdivision the home building uh, association publishes a report every year or maybe it's every couple of years where they talk about the estimated cost of government compliance so government compliance is plans, submittals, 
you know, uh, fixing, fixing red lines for regulatory remarks. Like if you don't have the ADA spaces for, you know, somebody in a wheelchair to get from the front door to the bedroom, into the bathroom, into the kitchen, to turn around, open the, the dishwasher, all of this stuff. Then, you know, you throw in the time that it takes to go through this whole process, the cost for uh, the zoning attorneys, the attorneys in general, the consultants, all this stuff. It's 31, it's like 31.5% of the gross sale of the house is attributable to government compliance. So for that $400,000 house, it costs almost $130,000 worth of time, money, basically time and money to get to that point. Same. Yeah. I can't stop for some reason connecting the first part of the conversation of how these designs and the architecture affects our psyche. And this part of the conversation where we're describing the opportunity costs and the missile capital caused by bureaucracy. I can't stop thinking about American beauty for some reason. I don't know why, but like that movie, it's like the quietation of suburb, like that, that, the beginning of the conversation, like how this affects us mentally with it. Like, is this cookie cutter, uh, this cutter city and planning leading to oppression that's, that's spiking or at least fully, but does it play a significant role in all of it? Yeah. So there's, um, um, trying to think, I think I want to say it's Sigmund Freud, but like in the forties, and early 50s, one of the studies that was done by the government was like, okay, this whole like European conflict thing has got to end. So, you know, what, what, what is causing the problem? And one of the conclusions that they came to, came to was that because everyone was living so densely, quote unquote, uh, in cities, that that was causing the animosity between people. Right. And that's why what was causing these world wars like that. That's what they're saying. Basically bubbles up. That's why, you know, you get Hitler or, you know, why all these people worship monarchies, all this other stuff, which is totally asinine. But their response was, OK, well, then let's do this. Let's promote uh, living in a way that people are nearby, but still separated and that they have their own space and that they're, quote unquote, not living on top of each other like animals. So. What do you have? You have the birth of the American home subdivision where you've got individual house for individual families separated by, you know, 10 feet, whatever. Everybody's got their own white picket fence, two and a half kids and a dog. And uh, we'll call it the American dream. So that was the beginning of the American dream psyop for moving out into, you know, quote unquote, the country, have your own little home. And over the years, uh, and I read, I read this a while ago, of course, I'm terrible at saving links, but they did do a psychological study where when you live in, let's say that you like live in the West Village, right? Where everybody's quote unquote living on top of each other. Like those people actually have a social affinity for their neighbors and the people that live within their neighborhood, right? And if you flip it, flip the script onto the American subdivision, it's literally the exact opposite where these, the, these separated homes in these subdivisions don't, call, don't promote social interaction, it promotes isolation, right? So these people live in their homes, it's their, their own quote unquote little castle, but it's more like a dungeon because they're trapped 
They don't interact with their neighbors. In fact, most of the time they hate their neighbors. If you've ever been to an HOA meeting, like you know that nobody likes anybody and that there's always the tyrant that gets in control of the HOA. And it's like, okay, well, the American subdivision experiment isn't working because it's part of the reason that nobody talks to each other, mostly because they're not forced to interact walking up and down the stairs or going in and out of the same building or even walking you know, to work. You got to drive walking to work, all this other stuff. So like you're, you're essentially socially isolated from the time you wake up in the morning, right? Take care of your kids or whatever, get ready for work, go to work and you hop in your car and you drive by yourself to your office. So your office is where you have most of your social interactions. So on top of that, what do you listen to? You listen to podcasts or the news, all these, all these other things that are, you know, may or may not be attempting to, you know, reinforce some social idea or paradigm. So you're not getting any interaction other than the things that you want to hear. And as we know, like from, you know, basically 2015 on that, you know, especially like a lot of the, the woke ideas, like these parasitic ideas basically take hold and proliferates to a degree where we saw like, you know, last year where everybody's worried about getting canceled, right? I guess even now. Everybody's worried about getting canceled, you know, threats of physical harm, all of these other things. And it's like, you living in this house, like you literally don't interact with your neighbors or anybody else who might even have a slightly different take on life or a take on like what's going on. There's no, there's no social cohesion really in these neighborhoods unless, you know, it's like a, a co-op or something like that, or, you know, like a private super private gated subdivision. A lot of times, you know, when you find social cliques and stuff like that, they'll all live, you know, near or by each other, uh, uh, mostly for social affinity. But the average person, no way, they're like living on an island and they're not even interested in talking to their neighbor. So, you know, from a, a mental health perspective, like this whole thing is an absolute mess. We gotta pick the. How does Bitcoin fix this? You, you were like, we just went on like a twenty-minute tangent as you were. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so then I for for me, how Bitcoin fixes this? With without the credit being provided for me as the builder to go through all of this brain damage and do all of this work, like it therefore can't happen. So you have a limited amount of money, right? And then it has to find the highest and best use, right? So, you know, value is subjective, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, at the same time, like babies are born every day and in 18 years, 20 years, 25 years, like they gotta live somewhere, right? They're, they're not gonna be living at home. Maybe there's, uh, I mean, there's definitely an argument for intergenerational living, which I'm a proponent of just because that's how things used to be. But at the same time, like you, there is going to be demand regardless. So the cities can't basically just bury their head in the sand and say, well, no, you need to comply with all this still. It's like, okay, I, I can't, I can't make those numbers work. Like it doesn't work. You know, whether uh, the U S dollar continues to inflate into oblivion slowly or whether it goes more rapidly through like a hyperinflationary event, like who knows, but something's got to give. And um, I'm of a believer that, uh, you know, Bitcoin is both 
the immovable object and the unstoppable force, right? It's going one direction and it's very difficult to change if change at all. So what's going to win? A city's, you know, setback rule or the fact that uh, Bitcoin is sound money doesn't really care. And that unless you start changing your own rules, how are you going to compete in the built environment, right? People are gonna go elsewhere. Miami is a perfect example of this. Uh, Mayor Francis Suarez, right? He's, he's taken the orange pill, it would seem, and is kind of starting to go down that path where he's recruiting, uh, you know, um, Silicon Valley firms, Bitcoin-minded people, all of these things. So like, we all know, like, once you start going down this path, like you get sucked into the black hole and then you find yourself tumbling down the rabbit hole. And then, you know, you come out the other side, like, oh man, oh man, like everything, everything is not okay. (laughs) Yeah, basically. So to me, it's like, okay, you've got this unstoppable train coming through your town. So you can either get on board or you are just going to get rolled over like you can't believe. So um, on top of that, all of these cities are financially bankrupt, right? Um, Chuck talks about this a lot. Nobody accounts for anything correctly. So our, our fictitious subdivision that we built, you know, that cost me $100,000 to put the infrastructure in. The city doesn't make enough money to replace that infrastructure without increasing new growth. So a Ponzi scheme. So then we roll it back to Bitcoin. Okay, well, you can't just create unlimited debt out of nowhere because that ends up very badly. So now you've got a, a new hard money emerging. Open source can't be controlled by anybody. can't be co-opted by anybody. It just is. So that's our unstoppable train rolling through town. So, okay, well, we know everything's broke and we've got to go, we've got to go back to a point where we're generating wealth. Like these, all of this infrastructure, all of these buildings has to pay for the infrastructure that serves it. Like there's, there's just no other way to do it because this whole living on debt thing is just like living on a prayer. Like you're, you're going to have a really hard time facing reality when your bills come due and your water doesn't work anymore and the sewer's not flowing right. Like, you know, these are all real world problems that are going to occur when you can't afford to fix your infrastructure. So I think it's, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, well, let's turn the history pages back, you know, a century or so and see how, see how people were building. Like how, how, how did they afford to have or install the water or the sewer back in the day or, you know, the sidewalks and the street. And it's like, well, you know, your building has to be financially productive and a story. And if you want to have these setbacks, well, sorry, but my building doesn't make enough money because I don't get enough lot coverage because I can't, you know, or I can't build a coffee shop below my apartment so that I can live above it and then work below it. Or like if you're, you know, uh, a butcher, you know, for all the uh, toxic carnivores out there, if you want to open a butcher shop and live above it with your family and all this stuff, well, sorry, can't do that. You violate the floor area ratio principle. You don't have enough parking, which is mandatory. So it's like all of these, all of these things that are like nice to have the citizens you know, berated their local governments over, like it, it doesn't work. It's the free ride. And it's been paid for by debt for so long that eventually that game ends badly as it always does. You know, what's uh, the saying that fiat money is unblemished by success. So um, 
you know, it's one of those things where the 20th century and how we built things and how we did things is, you know, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, oh, goodness gracious. It's basically, it's, it's basically like the one time that we tried something and it's like, Hey, this works. But in reality, it's like, no, it was never done that way. I'm not late. No. Yeah. No. Uh, the word we're looking for here. Yeah, I don't know. See, this is why it takes me so long to write things because I'm just like, ah, oh, I gotta go look up some synonyms. Trouble. Yeah, I've got um, bad. I've got bad, bad vernacular. Yeah, but it's basically like, okay, so this is the blip on the radar. So this is like, uh, uh, this is the obscure occasion where this happened, and it's like, okay, well, let's let's not do that again. But we've been doing it for so long that now you've got you know, two, three, and going into four generations of people who think that this is like the only way to do something. So it's like, okay, well, now they don't know any better because nobody ever studied this stuff. And it's been totally, totally walled off from architecture schools, planning schools, all this other stuff. And uh, from my perspective, it's like, no, just like, just like fiat money, you know, these last uh, 50 to 60 years, was the one-off deal it's like okay well we got to get back to like normal because there's a lot of things that are messed up and um you know this is this is not right this is not right something's wrong it's a lot of it's a lot of actual debt pulling production future production present day and then it's like infrastructure technical (laughs) i loved about strong town uh acutely highlights <laughs> the infrastructure yeah. that we're accruing it's yeah. like holy shit insane yeah. and i guess like let's imagine that we actually transition to a bitcoin and all these economic the object and the unstoppable force of bitcoin is change on the markets what do we do you're, you're cutting out pretty bad marty oh yeah i think it's i think it's my mic I think it's better yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. Audio, audio no issues on TFTC. Nothing new. So what I was saying is like I, I, <laughs> the uh, the like again. Chuck acutely highlights the the infrastructure debt that we're accruing as a society with this this subdivision mentality, this coded uh, sort of framing that we have to work within. Again, let's imagine that we transition to a Bitcoin standard and we, we, the economic forces just force the market to change for the better. What do we do with all this, like all these subdivisions, all this like laid pipe, all this road? Do we like have like a controlled demolition and like reuse the, the materials in some way? Um, you know, I think. I certainly think that's possible. Um, you know, if you let's say, you know, to be, to be very toxic, like if you got rid of, you know, like, uh, uh, minimum wages or all of like these quote unquote child labor laws and stuff like that. And you had, you basically got to a point where, you know, we, we've screwed up so bad and now we're in a new place. So how do we fix all this stuff? And I think that the answer is to, you know, start from first principles. It's like, okay, well, we know that the traditional development method is how things have worked or been done for thousands of years. And America is a little bit different from Europe because we don't, you know, we don't have any external, you know, 
enemies that are going to come over and raid our town. So we don't need to build a wall. We're not confined, you know, to a specific geographical space. So I think that um, a lot of the populations are going to be forced, not like saying collapse in on each on themselves is not is not the correct context. But it's like, okay, they're going to have to come and start anew from the, from the middle, basically the center of town, and then work themselves back out. Yeah. They're going to have uh, to... I was going to say sports analogy here, like lacrosse. Everybody knows I love the sport of lacrosse. Like that's one thing when you're in a fast break and you're getting back on defense, that's like to, to solidify the defense, you, you get in the hole and then you work out from there. Like it's like get in the hole. Like this is how we... Right set up the defense and get in the hole and work out from there. Right. So, and I think that uh, when you, when you add in the financial productivity argument, you know, there's going to be all sorts of little pockets all over different towns where, you know, the real estate is financially productive. And I think that those areas will become, you know, new centers of town, you know, they'll evolve over time to be a quote unquote, you know, main and center street intersection. And that, uh, you know, you just work out from there. But you've also got to consider like how the utilities are set up because a lot of times these utilities are centralized. Like you may have two or three sewer plants, uh, you know, in Scottsdale, or maybe there's five or six in Phoenix. Well, you've got to go and take care of those, right? Those, you can't just let all that stuff go to waste or, you know, you've got your power plants, uh, electrical substations all over the place. Like you, you still have to take care of these things. Will they be as active? Like probably not. Because um, let's say that in our fictitious subdivision, 30 years later, the sewer uh, pipe goes bad and the people living in that HOA can't afford to replace it themselves, right? Normally that would be the city's responsibility. So it's like, okay, well, now we don't have sewer, so we probably ought to move. Uh, let's see what's going on. And if, um, you know, Bitcoin's around and all of these codes and stuff go away, like there will be a market response. The market will provide. So if I, you know, in my position as a guy who wants to build and develop, you know, beautiful buildings on Main Street and all these other things, like you better believe that I'm going to be over here building, you know, mid-rise buildings with all of the functioning utilities I can possibly get into it to attract people to solve their problem. You know, I'm, I'm going to get paid for that. That's the, you know, the beauty of the profit motive. So, you know, you're basically trying to start over. You're, you're going to have a semi difficult time, you know, anyways, because you've got all of this infrastructure that, you know, you have to basically maintain for basic, basic necessities, but like, will, you know, will the, the interstate or, you know, state freeway stack get repaired and replaced? Probably not. Um, not, not for a long time. And on that note, I guess there, there's lots of interesting things happen around, um, I want to say it is in Lafayette, Louisiana, where they are trying to get the interstate that runs, that basically divides their city uh, removed to uh, spur growth and to basically save the city's uh, financial, uh, I guess, you know, their balance sheet and all these other things. So on the standard, it's like, okay, well, We've got to go back to first principles. Uh, these are the areas that work. Why do they work? And let's let's emulate them, you know. And on top of that, you know, it's it's like we have the internet. Um, we can communicate these things. Um, 
you know, one way or another. And there's, there's gotta be some freaks that are interested in this. So then you've got people that, you know, are willing to put themselves out there to discuss and solve the problem. So, you know, it goes back to one block at a time, one house at a time. Um, you know, you remove the, uh, uh, I guess, similar to the, the, the people who benefit from all these rules, like a, a cantillionaire benefits from uh, the financial spigot, whoever, you know, whichever developers are benefiting from the fact that nobody can, you know, not anybody can just show up to build something, you know, that stuff all has to go away um, in order to solve a problem. Otherwise, you would never be able to, to fix things fast enough or effectively enough. So, yep, yep, one Bitcoin, one Bitcoin house at a time. It's all so borked. It's all yeah. so borked, man. I know, I know. And I, I've, I've said on Twitter too, or in, in my newsletter rather, that I, I really do think that uh, the entire real estate market, build, building, development, all this stuff for the last, uh, at least since World War II, has got to be the greatest malinvestment in history. You think so? Yeah, I, do, I really do. All of the, all of the old down, you know, especially east of the Mississippi. I, I retweeted a photo the other day of, um, I think it was Cleveland, Ohio, where they had like a uh, an aerial photo from the '30s, I want to say, and then they, you know, they have a GIS photo today, and it was like you know, downtown had been totally decimated. I think it was like, there was like less than 40% of the original buildings um, uh, in lot coverage in the area. And then they had like the freeways rolling through the on and off ramps and all of the parking lots, you know, the, the parking lots don't generate income. Like, you know, they can charge you for it, but they've got to go out there and fix, fix the concrete after each winter. They've got to do all these different things, but it's like, you know, maybe those lots are, you know, occupied for 30% of the time, you know, because you got to include night there. You've got to include to and from work, these peak hours, all these different things. So it's like, this is not financially productive whatsoever. So they, they've basically gutted themselves without realizing that they did it. And the only reason that they can afford it is because uh, money is cheap and debt is, debt is widely available. Oh man, it's also exciting. Yeah, you get to fix this problem. Yeah, a lot of work I, to be done. Uh, this is a jobs opportunity. I'm, I'm smelling jobs uh, to rework all this. How can, we, how can we frame this narrative for the the cantillionaires and the the socialists out there who just want us to keep printing money? Well, um, I would say instead of learn to code, it would be learn to plumb or learn to be an electrician. You know, all of these, all of these skilled trades, you know, they, they get like the butt end of the deal, you know, as far as like the Cantillion waterfall, like they're, they're the farmer at the very bottom, you know, they're the ones that are getting totally hosed over. Um, just like, you know, the, the, uh, the average man, man, woman, child, like they have no idea that this stuff is going on. They have no idea, you know, all these outside forces that are affecting them or why, or all the stuff and it's like, okay, well, you can't, um, you can't be angry at essentially uh, a small group of people 
that have access to a system that of course they're going to use like it's human nature but if you if you have regulatory capture so to speak of the federal reserve which you know like wall street banks hedge funds all the stuff you know they they basically do it's like well you know of course they're going to but you know it's like let's turn it back all of these good paying available jobs that are better than staring at your screen or working in a call center like these things exist like you know, people like to make fun of plumbers, but it's like, have you looked up the average income of a plumber recently? It's, you know, some of them are over a hundred grand. You know, this is not, you know, it's not a, a, a low level or menial job that's, you know, below people. It's, it's, it's doing a good. Work. They're doing work with their hands. They're getting out. They're not sitting on their yes. fat asses behind a desk, just crunching Excel sheets. They're probably yeah. actually living life better than you. Like, and I, and I talked to, uh, uh, guys on my job site all the time and they're like oh i wish i was sitting in an air-conditioned office i was like well you can have air-conditioned problems too so if you want to hand me that shovel and you can go to the office i'll, I'll gladly switch you for a week or two um it's just like you know i, I grew up uh, my family has a farm and a ranch so i i've always you know been outside doing things with my hands and doing stuff and i, I find that much more much more enjoyable sometimes than the stuff that I do. I mean, I, I definitely, I love doing building plans and designs and put some stuff together, but it's just, you know, all of the, all of the symptoms and like nth order effects that like fiat money has on, you know, the whole process is just totally aggravating. Um, just doing things that I shouldn't have to do or people cutting corners and, you know, contracts falling through because lumber goes up 5x just it's it's just one of those things where it's like you know some something is wrong and let's take a look at it and now we've got we have this tool in bitcoin as you know open source hard money and that it it really does fix this to a degree you know will it will it supplant the dollar i mean it doesn't have to i don't think so but it can it can roll back a lot of these really, really bad decisions. And that, you know, maybe this is like the, the, the weak men create hard times, the hard times create strong men. It's like, well, you know, maybe this is our opportunity to do something. You know, that's how I look at it. Like, sure. I'll show, I'll show up. I'll be that guy. Um, and I think that maybe as millennials that, um, you know, we've been badgered, by older generations as being absolutely, you know, worthless, just like every younger generation is. Let's just say, okay, well, I'm, I'm here to fix and solve uh, your problems, uh, not because, you know, I'm just uh, trying to suck up or anything, but I'm just gonna fix it because I'm tired of your crap. So, um, you know, that's, uh, I just wanna fix it because I just want beautiful buildings, Marty. That's just, if I have to see another Taco Bell, I don't know what I'm going to do. Completely agree. It's like, how, how would, how would do you think your building design would change if you didn't have to fit into this um, city code living? Uh, well, so, I mean, hmm. Kelly's looking to around his, his apartment or his house right now. Excuse me. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's more about, building to me it's more about building like some smaller things it's given uh 
like I, my favorite building is like the two or three story brownstone building, right? You've got um, like a little retail shop on the first floor, maybe an office on the second floor, and then, you know, above that, usually it's just residential. So I want to build stuff like that. And I, I, like, if I, if I never built another building that has stucco on the exterior again, I would probably be the happiest person on the planet. It's just that like you can, you can swap out these materials that you're required to use. You can stop doing or stop following all of these like general design requirements. Like, so I'm, I'm in, uh, you know, Scottsdale, like every building is either brown or light brown or tan or slightly tan or white. Like that's it. And that's all that you're allowed to do. So to me, it's, it's throwing out that whole, that whole book and designing buildings, looking at buildings that are aesthetically pleasing um, with the different details. You know, I don't have to be, you know, like outside of my apartment right now, there's a, a six lane street with a median in the middle that's gotta be like 15 feet wide. So from me to the next building, it's probably close to like a hundred feet. You know, it's not, that's not like a good use of space. So it's redesigning, you know, uh, the sidewalks and the streets, narrowing the streets, um, then that gives you more space for your buildings, or you can put, you know, multiple buildings, put a little like park on the inside, you know, all this, stuff. just like the, the level of creativity that you have, you know, just goes through the roof. And that's, that's just the stuff that I want to do, you know, um, it just, you know, bums me out that, you know, this is kind of how it goes. And that's not to say that like, you know, the only thing anybody should ever build is a three-story brownstone. Like, no, like build, build your high rises, build your mid rises, all that stuff. Just at least make it look nice and not a giant piece of glass. Right. That's another question I have is like, has this trend towards this cookie cutter building cookie cutter design has it led to like a dearth of architecture talent right like can we even build those beautiful buildings moving forward because people are so removed from the era in which they were built yeah and there's actually um so i guess you could say like on classical architecture twitter uh there are uh you know vocal vocal accounts that talk about this i mean even some of them um uh, Eric uh, Boomstra started his own like little classical architecture school, like an online school. Um, there's a Charleston architecture account that posts a lot of the work that they're doing. Um, it's all like classical sense. And they, you know, they get out there with forks and knives and, uh, you know, defend the classical, you know, the classical ways, the old ways of doing these things. And they, they can articulate, you know, much better than I can, cause I'm not, you know, I'm not an architect. I read some of these books and I'm just like, okay, that sounds nice. But um, there definitely are people out there and they talk about, or I guess they share a lot of the experiences that they have with people that come to them and say, hey, I, I just spent like six years in architecture school and I hate everything about it. Like why, why, why didn't I know about, you know, arches or columns or... You know, why is an ionic column like this? Like, why, why didn't I learn about any of this? Um, uh, why is the window placement like this? Why is my building, you know, uh, why are these ratios, these floor, these floor ratios like this? And then they, they basically come to, 
learning that they didn't learn anything. Right. So there, there's a, there's a meme. I feel sympathy as somebody who got an economics degree. I feel a lot of sympathy with these people. Oh yeah. And I, I'm the same way. Like I, I spent all that time in college. I graduated college. I think I was 24. I did a victory lap. So I had a little extra time, but um, I've basically spent like the last 10 years unlearning absolutely everything I've ever learned to the degree of like, you know, uh, economics, um, planning, architecture, uh, design, all of these things. Cause you like there at some point in the early 20th century, like somebody just put up a wall on all the knowledge that existed before then. And they just said, no, you don't, you don't need to look over there. Here's everything that you need to know. So now it's one of those things where it's like, okay, well, somebody finally got a ladder, went over back to the wall, took all of the crap to get there and just peeked over to see what was going on and basically saw that it was great and um, started bringing all that knowledge back over. And I, I really do think that that's kind of what's happening in that, um, you know, I just, the internet is awesome. Absolutely awesome. And, you know, stuff like Twitter, you know, you take the good with the bad, but um, all of the information that like, if you really wanted to go find a niche, like you really could. So like when I stumbled onto like classic architecture, Twitter, I was like, Oh my goodness. Like, you know, this is great. Like I'm not just reading a book, but I can interact with the people who actually do this for a living and believe in all this stuff. And, you know, they used to be on an Island and now they have all sorts of counterparts all over the world talking about these things, sharing the knowledge and then creating informational products to, share with other people and it's just like you know to me it's uh uh it's just like bitcoin where it's like it you know it's an idea whose time has come you know so watch out yeah no i love classical architecture twitter wrath of non obviously being yeah being the goat. Wrath, wrath of non is good there's uh there's a bunch of guys um that post stuff like that wrath of non has always been a good one i've dm with him i've tried to get him on the podcast he's uh He's a bit shy. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't think he does public appearances. I, I've uh, interacted with him a bunch over the years, but uh, yeah, because I'm pretty sure. Uh, well, I know he's he's based in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, there's lots of actually good uh, uh, architecture. Uh, I think ones like at Architecture Japan. There's lots of good. Uh, you have a list on Twitter. Japanese architecture. Yeah. You have a Twitter list. Uh, no, I'll put one together though. Yeah, could you do that? Because I would actually love to throw that on my tweet deck. Yeah, yeah. I'm too lazy. I'm I'll contracting out work. <laughs> As a, me too. I'm I'm too busy yelling at subs, and I always forget to do things like that. But uh, yeah, no, there's there's lots of good accounts that put this you know put these photos together. Then they talk about the designs and why they're that way. You know, like the Jap- Japanese. Uh, use of wood is legendary for longevity and reuse and, you know, not ever using a nail to preserve the wood. Like it's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy where we live in Marty. I mean, goodness gracious. Yeah. And I like to think I enjoy quality aesthetics. Like going back again to the beginning of the conversation, I completely agree. Like beauty is not subjective. Like it is objectively beautiful or not. And 
it's very palpable living having lived in cities like Philadelphia, New York, Chicago is actually like a weird anomaly where they've they've kept good architecture and, and good aesthetics throughout the city, and, that, and that's that's actually a great case study. Like they had the opportunity to rebuild the city from scratch due mm-hmm. to the Chicago fire, mm-hmm. and basically learning from the mistakes of the the original design of the city. They added uh, back alleyways so the trash wasn't on like the front of, uh, street facing, wasn't on the sidewalk. Um, they, they brought in architecture architects from all over the world to have like a diversity of of beautiful buildings from from different sort of regions of the world uh but like philadelphia focus on philadelphia specifically where i grew up i was born and raised where i plan to settle down and, and and plant my roots in the ground at some point in the next couple few years even though people are for, for everybody to, in austin they should probably just plug their ears for that yeah part. i don't know like <laughs> I'm going to make my Austin trip in a few weeks here. I'm going to stay for two weeks. I'm going to feel it out. I have an open mind about it, but and there's something about Philadelphia that just draws me in and it always drags me back. But Philly is in a dire, dire straits in my mind. And I don't know if anybody from Philly is listening to this and you're just like, fuck you, Marty. You haven't been back to Philly in, in 11 years. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? But I, I do go back. I, I visit family and I spend extended periods of time in the city and, just like the, the city government's fucking everything up and it's like you, you have i mean city hall's beautiful like you, we still have uh cobble brick roads that are beautiful like independence hall beautiful i really want to preserve that i think philly does actually have like a good aesthetics board and really focuses on the horticultural society specifically focuses on making public spaces beautiful my cousin actually worked for them for a while and did mm. some really good work there to make sure that there were, there were beautiful public spaces in philly but it's like I, I want to make sure everything's preserved. Like there are pockets of Philly, mainly where I grew up in the northeast section of the city, where you had these cookie cutter row home designs that are just not made to last. And so for me, like I, I like big stone houses as well. Like I want a stone house with like a lot of rich wood, fireplaces, a study. No, yeah, fi- fireplaces are are my favorite. Same. And I like I, I said, I'm sitting next to like a gas fireplace right now. I'm like, this is a fiat fireplace. <laughs> <laughs> does, it, does it have the glass in front, or can you at least touch the flame if you know it's got a, to? it's got the glass? It's full fiat. Ooh, full, full fiat. fiat. Yeah, that's all I want is just like a wood burning fireplace and a stone house with a study in a in a backyard. And you can get that in Philadelphia and some in some parts of the city. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, and that's. Uh... You know, to go back to, I guess, you know, history, there were single family homes, like, you know, quote unquote row homes and all that stuff, you know, but if you like, if you wanted an estate in the countryside, so to speak, or a plot of land, like, I mean, you could certainly do it. Whereas today you've got to pay for all the infrastructure to be brought. Like if you didn't want to have, you know, like power or you want to drill your own well and stuff like you could do that. You could be self-sufficient on your own little Island out there. And now it's, now it's no way. That's uh, that's one of the things that you know the sticks and carrots and stuff that the city will use to get you to comply. I mean, you can't even build something without you know, like if you wanted to have, uh, if you were in a, in, I guess inside city limits, like you couldn't try to build like a a solar paneled powered home and not be connected to the grid. Like the city would never even 
give you a permit for something like that. Can't collect not to say rainwater. It's like what the yeah. Fuck? How can you stop oh, yeah. collecting water from the sky? Like what? Yep. That's just the level of insanity. And uh, you know, in, on like a on like a Bitcoin standard, so to speak. Like I, I just haven't been able to figure out how how a city or a town can uh, can pay to enforce all of the garbage that they've got on the books. I think, I really think that's only possible because of uh, debt finance and all of these, you know, the growth Ponzi scheme, all of the money flowing in. Like if they didn't have that, like, could they even pay to enforce these policies? And I think, I think not. And I think that's another wonderful thing about, you know, Bitcoin is a hard money is that, you know, all of this stuff that somebody's got some pet project or pet policy objective that they want to do, like you just, they, it can't be paid for. So sorry, go to the next town over better luck there. Right. Let's send it on an optimistic note, right? Like the first part of fixing a problem is identifying the problem. I think we're doing yeah. a very good job for the last hour and a half of identifying a very, very big problem. A problem that you believe will be looked back upon as the largest misallocation of capital in human history, which is pretty insane. Yeah. It's yeah. crazy and it's all going on and like <laughs> nobody realized it as it was going on. Like, no, it's just you, you I mean, I, uh, I said this at one point in my newsletter. It's like, sorry, sorry, not sorry. But now that you walk outside and you look at a building or you look down and look at the street and you're like, oh my goodness, where did this come from? How is it being paid for? And how will it be paid for in the future? And it's like, oh boy, oh boy. Like this, I, I mean, I, I don't want to say I drive around like an ex- a mode of existential crisis, but I, I pretty much do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> being the guy who writes a newsletter about this, but you know, the whole point, you know, of my writing and the thinking and the stuff that, you know, I, I try to share and get people to think about like with Bitcoin, is that like, no, like we can, we can fix all of this. Like we know, like you said, we've identified the problem, you know, we identified how the problem became to be. And now we have a solution. Like we have the solution. It's there. So now we just need to get to a point where, we're changing the world around us so that we're congruent with reality. Like, like, I don't know, I'm, I'm jacked up. Like that's, that's, you know, something that I look forward to doing, you know, buying up whole city blocks in my little town and, uh, and rebuilding. Right. So it's a good, uh, a good admirable life's work, right. Or goal of life's yeah. work. Let's uh, let's go fix this shit, Kelly. Like that's like, right. Like fuck, fuck all this. We need to go fix it. <laughs> like it's time. No more waiting. That's the beauty of Bitcoin too. Like you can actually fucking like move to fix this like right away. Like you can just yep. Like all right, we have the ability to opt into the system. The system will help us fix all this shit. Opt in. Let's go. Let's go. No more. No more moping. No more waiting. Like, let's be active. No more, no more yeah. waiting for the politicians to fix it. We can fix this. You just got to act, stack sats, and start spreading these ideas and, and helping to identify the problem. Let people know. Freaks, if you're listening to this, I want you to go tell 10 people that, that we have this problem. Make it clear to them that this is a problem. Send this episode to them. 
it's the growth hack as well as like <laughs> a it's doubling as a growth hack and and a PSA to, to everybody out there. Play yeah, play it at your local HOA meeting if you're brave enough to go. Ooh, that's a good that's a good idea. We need these messages to propagate. And that's actually one thing. After I interviewed Chuck last year, I got I bought Strong Towns for my dad. I think that you freaks know this as well. He runs a coffee shop and a couple of restaurants in our hometown, and like it like blew his mind. Like the the uh, revenue per square foot, um, that metric alone is just like mind bending when you come to understand it. Yep, yep, yep. I was I was blown away by. I think they did the math where you had to, in order for uh, the typical American subdivision to pay for uh, the replacement of the infrastructure. The city, like the city's portion of your property tax, would have to double every year for like 15 years just to pay for the next, the next installment and uh, upgrade of your infrastructure. Which is, you know, if you've ever paid property taxes, you think to yourself, like, what? Like, I already pay like, you know, two thousand, five thousand, ten thousand dollars a year, and you say it's gonna double for how long? So, yeah, it's it's crazy. But Bitcoin fixes this because, Marty, you and I are out there fixing it. We've got this tremendous force behind us in Bitcoin. And, uh, I mean, amen to that. Like I said, all, all jacked up. All jacked up. If you're listening, join us. You can join us. It's as simple as stacking some sats. $10 worth. $20 worth. You could easily do it on the cash app. No, I'm kidding. But, like, the, the, <laughs> like you can join us. We're ending on an optimistic note. Join us. We can fix this. Let's be proactive. No more moping. Kelly, where can we find out more about you, Bitcoin urbanism, and your efforts to help educate the world about the problems as well as the solution to the problems? You're, you're both identifying and providing. Well, let's see. I, I have a Twitter account. It's at K-T-L-A-N-N-A-N. And then uh, for the writing, it's just at Bitcoin urbanism. So the word urban and then I-S-M. And then uh, the, the uh, newsletter is bitcoinurbanism.substack.com. All right. Check it out, freaks. Go subscribe. Again, I've been loving it. I love your writing style. I love the subject you're writing about. Thank you for doing it. Thank you for joining me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. That's all we got for this episode, freaks. We'll be back at some point in the future. Peace and love. Ta-ding!